Uh, We're going to be in uh, Romans, starting in chapter 14, if you have a Bible with you and want to follow along, or the same text is printed there in your bulletin. We're in a section of the book of Romans, as we've been going through Romans, this section is about um, unity in the Christian community, and the things that tend to be threats to that, that break us apart, uh, beliefs and attitudes that cause trouble, and uh, cause us not to be able to live together in peace like we're clearly intended to. Last week was kind of the general statement of these things. This week, Paul gets more specific there about disputable issues that people were using to divide amongst themselves. Um, Things that people were convicted about, like they weren't just opinions people didn't care about, uh, but they were things that Paul said were less important than the central matters of the faith. And therefore, we should overlook them and live with each other in peace despite our differences. Uh, Their issues tend to be uh, food, probably related to food sacrifice to idols, which was complicated for uh, Jewish-Gentile relationships, drinking wine, um, uh, and then observation of days, holy calendars or pagan calendars, whatever it was. Those were the issues that troubled them, not typically the issues that trouble us. If I asked you this week, uh, what is the main thing that creates tension, division, and threat in the Christian church as you experience it day to day, I'm guessing you would say politics. Um, Not an easy week for us. So, I want us to read this passage today with that context in view. The political differences that exist in the church and how we handle them, and sort of as you read to ask the questions, um, where do we have to draw lines? Where are we biblically obligated to draw lines, exclusionary lines, uh, because of our faith in public life? Where are we supposed to show this costly tolerance and love that Paul describes to each other despite our differences? And how, how, how? Is it possible for us to actually live together with deeply held differences politically? Because that's what we're called to do. Um, I'll give you disclaimers that this is too long. And um, I tried, but I I couldn't make it shorter. And also, I'll give you a disclaimer. This is framed by my embarrassment from the last week as a Christian. And, uh, And my sense that my tribe is, uh, as evangelicals, is near homogenous in its political affiliation. And so if I'm not fair, I should have been fair, and I'm sorry. Um, I really am. I don't, I don't want to be unfair. Um, but I'm talking to us. I'm going to do the best I can. I hope you'll be gracious to me. So let me pray, and we'll read. Father, please help us and help me to think more wisely and more godly about uh, how we handle our political differences. I pray that you would um, make what I say that doesn't comport with your word forgettable and ask that you teach us, though, we want to be a church that pleases and honors you and we have hard time with this. And so we need your help. We ask for it and we look to it, your word for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 14, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. If your brother's greed by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. But blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith, and whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his own good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know what a picric drumstick is? I'd be highly surprised if you knew what a pickrick drumstick is. Old Lester Maddox, as he was known, was a former lieutenant governor and governor of Georgia. Also a restaurant owner, the Pickwick Restaurant, famous for its fried chicken and southern food in Atlanta, downtown near Georgia Tech. Um, but uh, Maddox was a arch segregationist. And... Um, when the 1964 Civil Rights Act came out, he called Lyndon Johnson a communist and refused to comply with letting his restaurant become integrated. And so soon after the Civil Rights Act was passed, there were three black seminarians who came to the Pickrick to eat and also to make a point. Right? And uh, Maddox met them at the door of the restaurant, brandishing a 38. And he said, get out of here, you no good, dirty devils. Get out of here, you dirty communists. And then his uh, patrons uh, joined in his defense by taking uh, pickaxes that were there decorating the wall, axe handles, off the wall of the restaurant. And they all came out, about 12 axe handles and all, came out to make sure there was no further trouble from these invaders, as they said. Later, uh, Maddox, having become famous for the pickrick drumstick, which is what they call the axe handles, had a barrel by the door of his restaurant and had axe handles for sale for $2. 
and he would autograph them for you if you went to the restaurant there. So you could get your own Pickrick drumstick to have at home. We had one at my home. He was elected governor and lieutenant governor of the state after this on a platform of prizing love of God, love of country, and the free enterprise system. He taught Sunday school at an evangelical conservative church like this one for years and years before and after. So how does Lester Maddox and the people in his church not die from shame? I mean, what did the black people in his church say to him? (laughs) Black people in his church. Um, They weren't allowed to be in his church. Same church I grew up in, same denomination. How did his church discipline trial come out, do you suppose? Yeah, they didn't have a church discipline trial. How do you think people who are trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ with African Americans in the city of Atlanta were affected by his actions? Yeah, not well, right? Not well. What would Paul say about a church that's troubled by divisions like that? I mean, what's our, what does our passage say? Church is troubled by divisions like the one I'm describing in Atlanta back in the 60s. I mean, Paul would have said, why can't we all just get along, right? Isn't that what he said? Why can't we, Rodney King? Why can't we all just get along? It's not exactly what he said, is it? Paul say, well, you've got to look at both sides. You know, there's sinful people on both sides. I'm sure the seminary students weren't just hungry, but they were trying to make a point. So, you know, both sides. I don't think he would have said that. Agree to disagree? Hey, it's better if we just separate. It'll be a lot more peaceful if we don't try to live together uh, around these differences. Let's, let's just have different churches for people with different political views. And that'll make Sundays calmer every week. Let's do that. Didn't seem to be his advice either. So how, how is unity, glorifying God with one voice in accord with Jesus Christ, possible in a church like that or a church like this? How is it possible to deal with deeply felt, deeply held political convictions that differ in the church? And in the church, as you know, most all of us latch our deeply held political convictions onto the train of our Christian faith and feel like they're pretty inseparable. So that makes it hard. And that makes us live in a church that's politically wrecked. The church of Jesus Christ in America is politically wrecked. We're given this vision in verse 5 and 6 of verse 15 where he, he talks about how the God of endurance and encouragement will give us grace to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like the idea we're supposed to be this uh, alternative community, right? Here's the church in the midst of the city of man where the Gentiles can't figure out you know, how to live together in peace. But here's the church, the alternative to the conservatives and the liberals. This is the third way. Jesus' community that's different, that's more con- compassionate than the uh, staunchest liberal and more committed to truth than the staunchest conservative, uh, living together with our deep differences because we hold our faith in Jesus Christ uh, as a higher prize and something worth sacrificing our preferences for. An example to the world of the shining city on a hill, which America 
Never was, but the church always was supposed to be, right? The shining city on the hill. And what do people see in the church politically? We're worse than the Gentiles. We're worse than the Gentiles. Part of that is because when Christians fight, we can't just disagree. We have to, we have to enlist angels and demons on our side and the other side. So like every fight is a fight to the death for Christians. Everyone is angels versus demons. It's never just my opinion versus yours. So church fights are always uglier. But let's just do that. Let's just live in harmony with our deep differences. Uh, Let's take the things that are disputable and not make them a big issue. And let's take the things that are essential that we all agree on and we'll hold to them and live our life in peace together and happiness. Won't that be good? So do that. (laughs) Let me know if you have any trouble. A couple of problems I notice for me that come up. Um, One is when I look at my political convictions, I think this. This political commitment that I hold is too important to treat as a matter of loving disagreement. This is a biblical conviction that I'm holding. It's not a disputable matter. No Conscientious Christian could disagree with me on this without uh, being unfaithful to Jesus Christ. My political position is that important and is that correct? That's one of the problems. If you think, if I compromise this political position, I'm being unfaithful to Jesus. So how am I supposed to just like live with the weaker brother and be okay with that? And so that raises the question we're going to ask and try to discuss a little bit is what is and isn't a disputable matter? Where do we have to draw the lines? Where are we required not to draw hard lines? So what is a disputable matter? The second problem, the second point we'll look at, comes from this attitude that says, I'm right and there's no way I can be wrong about being right. I'm right. (laughs) It's not conceivable that I'm wrong. Not conceivable. And I'll just say, if that is your attitude, which, (laughs) welcome to my club, if it is, um, that means that in Paul's parlance in this passage, you're one of the strong. Because the strong ones were the right ones. They were the ones that knew all foods were clean, right? So if you're right, you're strong. And now you need to ask the question, which we will ask, what are the peculiar obligations placed upon the strong in this passage? What's incumbent on you as a strong person uh, in this passage? So that's how we're going to try to ask these questions, and it won't be exhaustive. But First, what is and isn't a disputable matter? My political convictions are biblically important. I can't compromise them. Well, some political opinions are disputable matters, and some are not. Which ones? It's the hard question. Some are disputable. And that doesn't mean that there's no truth. It doesn't mean that we don't have as much truth as we'd like to have. Like what Jesus has said to us in the Bible is true. He just hasn't said everything I want to know. And what I make up to, that I think goes along with it pretty well isn't the same as what he said. right? And so... Um, We don't know the truth. We haven't cornered the truth on everything. We know some things truly from God's law. And saying that some things are disputable doesn't mean that the church never teaches about them. 
Because Paul, in this passage, teaches about the disputable matters. One of them was whether food, you know, whether you can eat non-kosher food or food sacrificed to idols. And he said, yeah, of course you can. That's the right view. But he's not so much worried about settling the dispute about food as he's worried about how we treat each other with our differences. That's the big point for him. But the church teaches about these things and should. And you know, so, um, But in this passage, you have the point made that some issues are weightier issues for us than others. Um, Paul's echoing what Jesus said in our gospel reading today when he, when he uh, talked about the Pharisees not being able to distinguish between the uh, weightier and less important parts of the law. Which is an interesting, interesting thing to say about a law that comes to us from God himself. To say some parts of it are heavier than other parts. But that's how Jesus talked about it. And when Paul says in verse 17 of 14 here, he says, uh, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Which echoes Romans 5, if you remember when we, talked, we read that passage, and it talked about what it means to be right with God, justified because of what Jesus has done for us, so we have peace with God, and we rejoice in the Holy Spirit. It's the essential matters of the faith. He's saying that's, what, that's where you put your weight down in church because those are the essential matters of the kingdom. And other things are less weighty and should be so in your sense. So some matters are more essential than others. So let's talk about politics. What are the essential matters and what are unessential matters? And this is an example list, not an exhaustive list. Is human life precious in the eyes of God? Yeah. Right. That's essential. Sixth commandment. Yeah, do no murder. Uh, humans created in the image of God. Their lives are afforded special protections that God places on us. We're incumbent to believe that human life is precious. Um, that's why Christian church has been uh, pretty univocal about um, speaking up for the unborn. Right? Because we believe that human life is precious, created by God. What's disputable is whose responsibility is it to ensure that the unborn have protections? Is that... The court's responsibility? Is that the federal legislature's responsibility? Is that the state legislature's uh, collective responsibilities? Or is it a matter of private charity and concern? In other words, do we approach this as the church like we approach theft, which is to approach it through punitive laws against those who break the law? Or do we approach it like racism, where we approach it through persuasion and hope people will do better? And which of these do we think is more effective, uh, more persuasive, more likely to protect human life better in our society? Uh, those are disputable issues. The tactics there, uh, how we approach that, you can see that people might disagree with that. And that people might accuse ones with different tactics of being less committed to the principle. So that's an example of essential versus disputable. Another essential... Christians are on the side of the oppressed. Jesus put us on the side of the oppressed. Um, he, he basically said, you know, through his prophets, when he judged nations, you can tell the front of his mind is always, how do they treat the poor and oppressed and the stranger and the widow and the orphan in their midst? And if they do that badly, they are provocative to God. Then Jesus comes, doubles down on that and says, when you do this to the least of these my brothers, you do it to me, the prisoner, 
the refugee, the hungry, the homeless. Um, He doubles down with that. So Christians, as a matter of our ethic, as a matter of the example of Christ, are bent towards the protection of the oppressed. And this is in the front of our minds when we go to public life. We want to make sure that those whom Jesus identifies with are noticed and cared for in our public life. We adopt Jesus' my life for yours ethic. But how does that play out politically? Not identically. A lot of Christians with those motives have drawn different conclusions. So take health care, for instance. A Christian has to say, I want to make sure that poor people are uh, okay in terms of health care in the society that I live in. And if my health care needs to be worse so that poor people's health care can be okay, well, that's a deal I'll take because I don't want to go to the judgment day and say, um, wow, Lord, I, I know the poor people didn't get to have health care, but I really appreciate the great health care I had. <laughs> I don't want to go in with that defense. So here's the question. For the Christian who cares about poor people and their health care, is the single-payer system the best way to ensure protection for poor people's health care? Or is a private enterprise system better? Or is some combination of those better? I don't know. I'm pulling for the free enterprise. I want to hear the free enterprise system that somebody can come to church and tell me, hey, we found a way to help poor people better than the government can. You interested? I'm interested. But I don't, I don't know that we're going to agree on what is the best way to achieve that hope and goal that we have. It's disputable. Uh, in the art of compromise that is politics, what's the best way forward with those things? We're going to draw different conclusions about that. Uh, essential. Racism is a denial of the gospel. We know that. Being justified by something other than faith in Jesus Christ. Justified by your race. Um, so we don't look at less dramatics and say, agree to disagree. You know, you can wave your gun at people and call them dirty. Um, hey, that's your way. This is my way. You know, let's just get along. We, we can't say uh, white supremacist Christian nationalism is Christian. Like, we're not free to say that. It's not. It's something completely different. But if you're a Christian concerned about racism in your country, in your church, in yourself, okay, um, what's the best way to see that change? I mean, what are, what are the programs? Uh, what are the political initiatives? What are the private initiatives? Or what are the public-private joint initiatives that will do the best toward establishing justice uh, amongst the people with whom we live. Um, What's the best way to take care of racism and address injustice? Which compromises that you have to make in a process like that are worth it? And which ones are a bridge too far? Those are disputable, right? I mean, we'll, we'll disagree about what the best way is to go forward with those things. So... How do you think we're doing? 
managing what's essential and what's disputable. I, I don't think we're doing well. Even with our churches divided homogeneously as they are, we still aren't doing well. A couple of mirrors to hold up that are the re- reasons I'm discouraged. Um, one mirror is to look at how, how do politicians appeal to us? Like I tend to think political media people are pretty smart and they know our weak underbellies and how to appeal to them. So if you're going to motivate and inspire a group of evangelical conservative Christians, which is what they would call us, right? How do you appeal to them? What do you tell your conservative candidate that you're advising? How do you appeal to the Christians to get them on your side? I don't think they tell them. Go into the church and tell them, hey, look, I know about your heart for the oppressed. I know how you care about refugees. I know how you care about prisoners. I know that you see Jesus in the widow and the orphan and the stranger. Here's my conservative, limited government approach to helping those people that I think will work better than the statist approach that my opponents have. I want to leverage your concern for the poor toward uh, a political system that I think will help them more than a big government system will help them. I'd listen to that person, right? I'd say, okay, tell me more. And you know what? We've gotten them to do it with regard to the unborn. So when uh, conservative politicians come to curry our favor, they always feel like they have to at least rhetorically uh, give deference to our concern for the unborn. And good for you. Good for us for that. They should. Uh, they, don't, they, don't appeal, they don't have a limited government appeal for <laughs> dealing with uh, pro-life issues. But they at least feel like they got an answer to us about that. But do they feel like they have to answer to us about the prisoner? No. About the homeless? No. About the refugee? No. No conservative politician worries that he didn't say enough about prisoners to get the conservative evangelical vote. They don't have to worry about that because we don't care. They don't have to worry about it. You know what they appeal to us with? Mammon. That works every time. If you're a consultant, you should tell your conservative candidate to talk to us about our money and how we can keep more of our money for us so we can do for me and mine. That'll resonate with us. Lately, they've been telling them, go tell those those worshipers of the sovereign Lord of the universe that they're victims. And they'll listen to you and believe it. That's what their consultants tell them that will resonate with us. Because they probably know us better than we know ourselves. Or what if you're a consultant for a liberal candidate and you're going to send them to the evangelical conservative church? What are you going to have, what are you going to have them say? You say, look, I know you guys believe in sin and I know you're wary of how power corrupts people. I know you're wary of uh, bloated, inefficient, self-serving, and often destructive bureaucracies and things created by well-intentioned people that have created more harm than good. I know you're tired of that, you're weary of that, and good intentions are not enough to satisfy you anymore. Uh, Just having a bleeding heart isn't enough to get your vote, I realize that. But I want to talk to you about a situation in which our working together corporately as citizens is the best way forward to deal with some of the problems we're facing. Would you listen to that person? 
a lot quicker than I would listen to any other liberal politician I've heard talk to me lately. I would listen to that. Um, Because most of the people I hear appealing to me as a Christian who want me to be more liberal, their appeal is, ooh, you don't want to be like those Cretans, do you? that's, That's been the appeal lately that I've noticed that uh, people on the left have used to appeal to me. So, why are they holding these mirrors up to us? What impression have we given them of us? What we want to hear? What we care about? It's not pretty in that mirror. Another mirror. If you tell your neighbor that you go to a conservative evangelical church, what do you think you will have told them? What conclusions will they draw from the adjectives conservative and evangelical? Because those are words I liked to use. When people would say, what kind of church are you? As a Presbyterian, I would say, well, we're conservative church, meaning that we're like traditionally orthodox with high view of the Bible and the gospel, the basic gospel. We, we believe that still. Conservative. And evangelical, we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central matter in life and faith. Um, but now, if you're a conservative evangelical church, well, this week, I'll tell you what my neighbors here, people dressed up in pagan Nordic berserker costumes, killing police, waving Confederate flags in the Capitol, building scaffolds with nooses, conflating Jesus and Donald Trump in a riot. Is that wrong? That's what my neighbors would hear if I told them conservative, evangelical. That's what they'd hear. Those are they're politically compromised terms now. You how do you how do you even say what kind of church you go to? There are no adjectives left. I want orthodox, but that feels rude because the Greek Orthodox you know church has orthodox. What I don't even have words to describe uh, what kind of church or we are, what kind of Christian I am anymore. They're they're useless. Because the people think we're a political action group. And so that's, that's the impression that we've given our neighbors. That's the impression we've given them. So it makes you think maybe we are not doing that great with distinguishing essentials from disputables and handling those differences together. If you hear something that you're only going to hear in a politically homogeneous church, it's a disputable. If only your church says it, it's disputable. It's a big challenge for us to actually have open minds and hearts to what the Bible actually says because it pushes hard on liberals and it pushes hard on conservatives. It really does. And to be willing to draw the lines where Jesus does with courage Uh, to be willing to learn and change on things that we thought were the places we were supposed to draw the lines, to be willing to show costly love and tolerance to our Christian brothers and sisters who don't agree with us, to show love wherever we can to each other is what we're called to here. Disputable, indisputable, the Venn diagrams overlap with all of us to some extent. Because none of us thinks just like Jesus. But we've got to learn to live not killing each other over the disputables.
Second problem is the attitude problem. I'm right, and there's no way I can be wrong about being right, which is not true. <laughs> the passage we're looking at in Romans comes right up in the section that began in Romans 12, in which we were told that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds because our minds need to be renewed and transformed. <laughs> because they, we don't think like Jesus about politics right now. You don't. I don't. It's going to be a lot of violent change in the way you think to fit you for heaven and for me too. Right? Uh, we're not right already. So that's why he talks about these things. He says, don't be so sure. Don't be so ugly with your convictions. Verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you post... You are no longer walking in love. By what you post, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 19. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And these are instructions given to the strong, you know, the right ones. So if you're right, then you're especially obligated to take the initiative to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's on you. Verse 22 and 23, people's consciences. You're responsible if you're strong, if you're right. You're responsible for the care and handling of your weaker, wrong, Christian friend's conscience. So that you don't force them to violate their conscience. You don't stomp on their conscience or be disrespectful about their conscience. In verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Obligation to bear with them. Don't please yourself. Don't please yourself. Don't please yourself. At least 95% of the doom scrolling I did this week was with people justifying and pleasing themselves by espousing their brilliant opinions and mocking the idiots who disagree with them. That's forbidden to us. That's, that's forbidden to us. And then we're supposed to do what Jesus did, which is bear the reproach of those who reproach God. That we're to lay down our lives. We're, we're to bear the reproach of being identified with each other even when, when the other person's wrong and foolish. We're to bear that reproach. So, if you had people who treated you well when you were immature, who treated you well and respectfully when you were wrong, you have a Savior who's treated you well when you were immature and well when you were wrong, who's come to you in compassion and love and not dealt with you as your sins deserve, but has shown you mercy. And that's what you're called to show to the weak brothers who aren't right like you. Strong's always like a subversive term in the Bible because as soon as you identify with strong, like all of us do, you, know, you get the judo moves on you like, oh, uh, beware anyone who thinks he stands lest he fall. You know, or like in Romans 2. When Paul is trying to say why we all need Jesus so much, he said, now you strong moral people who have God's law and think that you teach others and that you're the ones with all the insight, well, you're hypocrites. And the people outside the religious circles can see that clear as a bell. And they blaspheme the name of God because of you. The name of, name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's what he said to upstanding, moral, conservative people who were for sure they were right. That's, that's what he said to them. The chapter before that, he told the liberals that they're do whatever you want, godless ways, 
also made them desperately lost in need of Jesus. And then Jesus says to the strong, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, get the log out of your own. Get the log out of your own eye. How much time do you spend politically getting the a speck out of your own eye? And how much time do you spend focused on the log in your neighbor's eye? Jesus is uh, bothersome when he says things like this. But if you are strong, you're obligated to humble yourself and to pursue the things that lead to peace and to ask yourself questions first without someone else having to force the questions on you like, how come Christians like me endorsed crusades and wars of religion and slavery and Jim Crow segregation and systematic racism still? How come Christians like me got co-opted, co-opted by the Marxists? How come Christians like me got co-opted by the fascists? How come Christians like me politicized the gospel? How come Christians like me never have disciplined a person for racism? People are getting arrested for a rioting in the Capitol this week. How many of you think are going to face charges in their church? I hope some. But I doubt it. Because not only was the name of Jesus blasphemed among the Gentiles this week, we showed them how to do it. We showed them how to do it. Ask yourself, humble yourself, Um, Why did it take the disparity of the police response to white protesters as opposed to black protesters this week for you to believe that there's such a thing as systemic racism? I mean, your covenant theologians who believe that groups are held accountable to God because of the covenant of God. We believe in this, right? And we believe in depravity, that sin shoots through all of our hearts and all of our thinking but also all of our societal endeavors. Like, we believe that, but we couldn't believe when our black, and our black uh, brothers and sisters were telling us for years there's systemic racism and you're complicit in it. We're like, I don't think so, not me. I, I don't see color. Ain't no racist point in my body. I know my southern accent plays that better, but like, all of a sudden, this week, oh, well, that is different. Huh, who knew? It's our job, the strong supposedly, to listen to the we, to ask these questions ourselves. I had a friend who um, wants to help his church leaders be more familiar with you know, issues that are hot-button issues in the church and things that may be threats that they need to know about if they're going to be good elders in their church. And the first two things they picked, this is in Birmingham, Alabama, were uh, critical race theory, and the Revoice Conference, which deals with um, Christians and homosexuality. And it's a very understandable choice of issues. Uh, they're things that matter. Um, both movements are responses to the abject failure of the church to deal well at all with race or with sexuality. Um, but if we want to storm a, form a study group, we're going to talk about why those pagans are wrong in the way that they try to solve these problems. Instead of forming a study group to say, how have we bungled this so badly that we have nothing to say to our culture that they'll listen to? Um, There's a speck in their eye. 
But there's nothing in my eye. Pastor said it's incredibly challenging to talk about disputable matters in unity when Christians on various sides think the other is delusional and blind and trapped. If you think the other side is delusional and blind and trapped, says that you know, the only thing that can cut through that kind of a divide is cruciform love. The love with which Christ has loved us and that we're called to love each other. Where we bear the reproach of each other. Where we die to ourselves in our conversations. Where we care deeply about the consciences of each other when we talk to each other about things that are hard. Where we say, I'm going to adopt Jesus as my life for yours ethic when it comes to our political differences. These are the obligations especially of the strong. So my son, whom most of you don't know yet, I wish you did, I wish you could, but he's pretty limited socially, got an explosive political email from a friend of his. You know, one of those, whoa, somebody's riled up. Emails. But it's somebody he loves and respects. And I'm proud of my son for lots of reasons, but this especially. He, uh, he spent hours agonizing and praying about how to respond to his friend in a winsome way. I mean, gave, gave him hours of his life when it was a snarky email. And uh, he came and showed me the response once he was finally ready to send it, and I about cried because it was beautiful. It was respectful. Uh, the email was polar opposite of what my son believed uh, about the political issue involved. But he loved and respected his friend. He tried to understand him. He appealed to him gently. He didn't try to own him with a take, but he loved him. And it took about two months, but his friend wrote back and said, I really appreciate the way you replied to me, the way you showed me love, the way you respected me. And I've actually looked up some of the things you said and I'm asking questions that I hadn't asked before. And he came down and told us about that reply yesterday, and we did cry <laughs> because it's so rare and so beautiful. Now, they still have disagreements. They'll, they'll probably still vote different than each other. But my son took on the obligation of the strong. He died to himself to pursue, pursue the things that lead to peace. He sought to build his friend up instead of tearing him down, and he welcomed him as he'd been welcomed by Jesus Christ. And now because of that, my son and his friend can with one voice glorify the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And may their tribe increase. Let's pray.